we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Dear listener, this is episode 112 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. I've got Simon with me to do a special review of a book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And unfortunately, dear listener, I had very frustrating technical difficulties trying to get sound hooked up, which was all my fault and not Simon's. And it meant that I had to resort to plan E or F to get this recording done. So the quality is not the best. I apologise for the audio, but I think the content makes it worthwhile for you to persist. So sit back and listen and... Uh, we will resume normal podcasts next week. Thank you. Well, dear listener, uh, I have Simon with me, and as promised over the last few weeks, we are going to be reviewing a book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Is that the correct pronunciation, Simon, as far as you know? Yes. He and his uh, mate, uh, uh, Abos Tversky, were, uh, I think, Israeli psychologists. So as far as I know, it's Kahneman. Kahneman, yeah. So... Um, so, dear listener, it's a first for me and probably for Simon, so we'll see how we go. It's uh, an international bestseller and was on a lot of sort of must-read book lists um, when it first came out. And the idea of the book is to explore the errors of judgment and choice that people make. So, on this podcast, we've tried to explore, you know, rational choices and what are the best things for society and us and thinking carefully and all the rest of it. But mm. in the, in the mm. real world, while we might think people behave rationally in, and in their best interests, the studies explored in this book really demonstrate that it seems most of the time, Simon, we're acting against our best interests, it seems, almost. I'm afraid so. Look, um, I was intrigued when I heard you mention this book on the podcast a few episodes back and you were looking for someone to review it because it had been sitting gathering dust on my shelf for a couple of years. I'm glad you prompted me to read it. It, it is, I kind of joke to people, I've got it like a top 10 non-fiction books list that I keep. It's got about 30 titles in it. So it's now got 31 titles in it. This is a, if you're interested in understanding kind of the foibles of the way we make decisions, this is the book. It's, it's well worth a read. I mean, I've got some criticisms of it, but um, it's a tremendously insightful book and he can write. Yes, he can it, really write. It does. It is done in, a, in an entertaining style. Um, so, what we've got uh, to kick things off is that he describes what's called System One versus System Two thinking. So that when faced with problems, we're either using one or the other of those systems in our thinking. So, um, uh, System One is is automatic and intuitive and fast and that's the sort of thinking that we're using as a as a more or less as a default situation as we're making our way through life and the system two thought process is concentrated effort it's it's it requires genuine effort which is as he often describes, just a little bit painful in the sense that oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we have to get going with it. We don't really want to use System 2 if we can help it. We're kind of reluctant because 
we are essentially lazy. And if we think we can get away with system one thinking, we'll, we'll use it. Um, he has some very colourful ways of putting it, doesn't he? He says hmm. that um, system two is lazy. And uh, I love the illustration, the system one illustration at the start of the book of a picture of an angry, I think it's an angry woman's face. Hmm. And you look, you're presented with that and every human being on the earth instantly, instantly processes what's going on there. This is someone who's angry and probably angry at me. Hmm. Um, that's system one. And then the problem he gives system two is, you know, multiply 17 times 24. Yes. Well, you just can't do it. Yes. Well, you really, a lot of effort. Well, you really have to stop and think, then, then you're using system two. So, hmm. um, so, uh, so yeah. So system one is, is is it's poor at logic and it's poor at statistics. Um, system two, um, very good at reason and it's and it's very cautious. Um, and in the language, Trevor, of the title of the book, system one yeah. is fast thinking, and system two is slow thinking. Yes. Uh, and I just kind of think, I can't help but think of this analogy. System one is just saying to you, hold, you know, hold my beer, I've got this. Yeah. And it's so often misleading you. It when is. Really, you should be engaging system two. You should be slowing down, thinking things through and, just, and, and trying to introspect and say, well, why am I thinking the way I am? Why have I come to this decision? Yeah. So with Scott, a couple of weeks ago, I gave the example of a bat and a ball costs $1.10 and the... Um, bat costs a dollar more than the ball, how much does the bat cost? And I love uh, it what Kahneman says, the distinctive mark of this easy puzzle, he says, is that it evokes an answer that is intuitive, appealing, and wrong. Yes. Um, I've read that thing, and I, was it Scott was the guy you were talking to, wasn't it? He's yeah. the, um, the velvet glove. Indeed he is, so, yes. So you're and the velvet glove responded the same way I did, and I think the same way most human beings on earth do, and that is, well, of course... The number is the answer is ten cents. Yes, a dollar um, for the bat and ten cents for the ball. Yes, yeah. yeah. And that's not the answer. And you have to stop and just correct yourself. In my case, three or four times before you can see that you're clearly wrong. If you want an illustration of how poorly our brains do at some really important tasks, this is the one. I'm glad you brought it up, but it's horrific. Mm. So the correct answer, dear listener, is a dollar five and five cents because that's then. A uh, uh, dollar more, a uh, dollar difference between the two items. So, if you got that wrong, you're not alone because mm. more than fifty percent of students at Harvard, MIT, and Princeton uh, <laughs> give the intuitive and incorrect answer. And that's an example of, of the laziness of System Two because if you really stop and do the sums as a double check, you'll know. Hang on. A dollar minus ten cents is ninety cents, so that doesn't work. Uh, it must be something else, but we we don't like to do that. So that is a really good intro into the differences between the two ways of thinking. Um, uh, well, just how just how quickly System One gives you an answer when it doesn't deserve to is the disturbing thing, and and this the the book just covers this in such amazing detail. Um, well, we can go into some of sort of the discoveries if you like, but I don't know how you want to sort yeah, of approach yeah. this. Yeah, we'll just go through some of the examples we particularly like. But the, the one, while we're sort of bagging System 1, he does, <laughs> he does make the point that System 1 is an unbelievable um, process in itself. Like we can look at a face and we can intuitively take in a whole range of 
things about a person in a glance and many things that we're doing through life that um, through mere observance we are we are gauging correctly situations almost instantaneously that we're taking information in and we are um, assessing you know danger or safety or threat or opportunity or or whatever almost instantaneously so while system one comes in for some bagging it's it's incredibly powerful uh in its own right for what it does yeah so a yeah, slight, and, and, a slight totally. and, of system one and, and, and in its absence you don't have a functioning human being yes um, you really don't because as he says in his language he says it continually constructs a coherent interpretation of what's going on in our world at any instance that's an expensive and hard thing to do mm. and we so rely on that mm. particularly when we're navigating you know the world of emotional problems is this person angry at me or the or the you know i guess in our ancestors times the the, the problems of is this animal likely to attack me mm. am i going to fall off this cliff these are all system one quick intuitive decisions and they're usually right yes and, and at you that need... level of abstraction yes exactly so there's a number of sort of different thought processes or situations where we make mistakes. Um, one of them was uh, sequencing matters. So he gave the example where if he was marking exam papers, that uh, if there's a series of questions, if the student has performed well in the first uh, few questions, then there's a bias in your mind to think, well, this is actually quite a switched-on student. And, and you will actually give a more favourable mark to the later questions based on, on the assessment of the first few questions because what he found was that if he, if he just marked everybody one question at a time and didn't refer to how well, didn't know how well that particular student had done in previous questions, Remarking papers that he'd already marked, he would discover that he had been influenced by the the good marks of a student if he went through the whole paper and marked a whole student's paper from you know go to woe. So, so sequencing matters was an interesting one, I thought. And the other part of that, which was more for people in everyday life, Simon, which I'm going to do at every critical meeting I ever go to, which I don't have to get that many, thank goodness, but was um, you know. What typically happens at a meeting is, you know, everybody gathers and issues up for discussion and the leader of the meeting will then give an opinion as to how an issue, you know, should be resolved or give their opinion of a, of, of a, of a solution. We're talking about a meeting where people are, you know, trying to, not just passing on information, they're trying to strategize or work things out. And those initial thoughts laid out by anybody in a meeting are far more persuasive than they should be. And the ideal thing in a meeting would be to say to everybody, right, before we start this plan to, you know, buy this company or do this thing, everybody write down your opinion and your thoughts before we before anybody says anything. And then have that information uh, everybody's have their say after that because the um, the, the influence of the first person to speak just tips people, everybody in the room, in a direction. Have you seen that happen, Simon? I have, and I think, I think Kahneman calls that an anchor, doesn't he? The, the first decision or the first statement's been made and it, prevents, it presents an anchor in your mind, whether you like it or not, and you think, oh, 
So this is what we're talking about. Okay, so I'll I'll anchor, I'll shift ever so subtly what I was going to say to conform with this. Yes. Uh, another anchoring example that I, I really loved was the um, the rigged wheel of fortune, and again, some of these experiments they're done over large numbers of uh, of cases, so it's not just a single isolated uh, test. We, we, these are results that you can trust. Sometimes they're, they're decades long experiments. So the rigged wheel of um, wheel of fortune, you, you get to spin uh, a wheel, and you, I think from, from memory, I think you get ten or sixty five. It's rigged so it only comes up with those two numbers. Um, then after that, you're asked a question that's got nothing to do with the Wheel of Fortune or anything like that. It's a question to do, in the case of one of the uh, studies, I think the number of African nations as a percentage of seats in the United Nations. Right. And again and again and again, people would choose one of the two rigged numbers as their answer. Yes, yes, yes. Having so, been anchored to do that. Yes, well, yes. So anchoring was interesting. Um, I, I liked the redwood trees. When they said to people, you know, um, what, um, yeah, the redwood trees, page 123. Let me just go to that one because I'll just get the initial question. And, Remind me because I don't remember yeah, that one. Yeah. So, so with this one, um, uh, they asked the, the following question. Um, oh, yeah. They said to people, oh, yeah. is, is the height of the tallest redwood tree more or less than 1,200 feet? And then they said to people, what is your best guess about the height of the tallest redwood tree? Mm. And then to a separate group, they said, you know, is the height of the tallest redwood tree more or less than 180 feet? <laughs> and then they said to them, what's your best guess of the height of a redwood tree? And, you know, no surprises, I guess. But the people in the first group averaged 844 feet and the people in the second group uh, averaged 282 feet. You so, know what the worst, thing, the worst thing about this is? This is well, us he's talking about. This is not just some random group of silly people. This is everybody, yeah. ourselves included. That's pretty sobering. Yes. So, um, so um, basically what they do is the difference between those two averages, the 844 and the 282, is 562 as opposed to the difference in the in the two anchors is 1,020. And you, you came up with a value of 55% as a statistical figure of, of anchoring. So what they then did was um, similar examples would be, and this is where you could apply this to your listener to real life, where they said to some real estate agents, um, showed them some properties and, um, and asked them to value the properties. And for some of the real estate agents they were given a very high asking price by the vendors and on some of the properties they were given a very low asking price by the vendors and they were told, you know, ignore the asking price, just give your valuation of the property. But those asking prices had the effect on the real estate agents and the anchoring effect was 41%. So... Um, even though they consider themselves professionals and, and un, you know, unaffected by what the vendors might want, they couldn't help themselves. Um, yeah. So, dear listener, when you're selling a house, don't tell the real estate agent, you know, what you want. <laughs> no, this is dead set important. This is um, oh, yeah. uh, uh, you know, 
what my good friend is doing this at the moment and the agent is trying to work out his price and he is not telling the agent because you know you, you then set a level that the agent's going to go for and um, he wants to get as maximum he can so so yeah when you're selling a, a house do not tell the agent um, because that will then um, have an anchoring effect and once he gets there he won't go for any extra uh-huh. I have made that mistake in my life. Mm, I, I have too on another occasion. Mm. And the other interesting thing is that this anchoring effect, Simon, doesn't have to have anything to do with the actual subject matter. So they had some German judges who were presented with a case and uh, it was one that would require incarceration of somebody for a number of months. And they presented the facts to the judges and, you know, to get their opinion as to what the sentence would be of this person in this position. Prior to doing that, they got the judges to roll some dice. And the dice were loaded so that the judges threw either a three or a nine. And, dear listener, the worrying thing is that the ones who threw a three came up with a much lower sentence than the ones who through a nine. It was on a, on a matter that was was totally unrelated and the anchoring effect was 50%. It was very similar to the Redwood Tree uh, scenario. And that's from rolling a dice. It's scary, Simon. It is, it is. Well, as Kahneman would say, that's system one, doing the best it can and giving a quick assessment of the world in front of you and anchoring is one of its foibles. And apparently that's of evolutionary value to us and now it gets in the way. Mm. Um, I can't remember whether you and Scott talked about the other horrific um, example involving judges. This time it was, it's not anchoring, but it's parole judges in Israel. Did you guys talk about that a couple of weeks ago? Oh, uh, we would have at some stage, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, reviewing parole applications um, uh, and measuring whether or not the parole application succeeded or failed and measuring the time of day the decision was made. And again and again, they discovered that the um, approval and denial rate fell sharply to do with uh, how recently the judge had eaten. Yes, yes. So if, if you had got to a judge uh, just before lunch, then he's edgy and anxious and, um, and not willing to engage system two. And the easy thing for a judge is to go system one and deny parole Whereas after lunch, he's feeling good, his glucose levels are up, system two can be activated and he's more willing to actually make the harder decision, which would be to grant parole. Yeah. And elsewhere in the book, Kahneman talks about psychologists and other professionals presented with these kind of results about themselves and depressingly enough, in most cases, not really taking them seriously or not really assuming that they really apply to them. In other words, acknowledging... Yeah. Kahneman's findings are right about people in general, but not about them. And I wonder whether that would be the case with you know, the average judge as well. If you went to the average judge and said, are you aware that you're subject to this rather base problem? I think the average judge would say, well, no, I'm not. Of course I'm not. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Terrible. Yeah. Well, that's true, but they just wouldn't be aware of it. Um, dear listener, uh, kidney cancer, uh, talking about America... If I was to say to you, uh, the counties in which the incidence of kidney cancer is lowest are mostly rural, sparsely populated, and located in traditional Republican states in the Midwest, the South, and the West. What do you make of this? And, you know, 
if you're an average person well simon as an average person what would the normal person's response to that be i would i'm kind of poisoned a little bit because i've read yes. that a, 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 anecdote in the book and I know what to avoid but yeah. I would jump to the conclusion that there's a causal relationship there yes and that the, something to do with the state they're in or the number of people or the level no. of poverty and say yes Trevor that's definitely a cause well you'd be thinking um, kidney disease low in those rural sparsely populated you know less pollution healthy living fresh vegetables it's all know. good news where those guys live absolutely yep yeah. yeah. and um, and but then if you were to say to somebody uh, now, the counties with the highest incidence of um, kidney cancer, um, mostly rural, sparsely populated, and located in traditionally Republican states in the Midwest, the South, and the West. And you'd be going, well, how, how can that be the case as well? And you'd be thinking, well, you know, they're, they're overweight and they're eating rubbish and they're down at the local diner having bacon and eggs every day or something. I don't know. But... Um, the thing is, it was all related to small numbers, that um, where you have statistically low numbers of people, then you're going to get, um, just by the nature of statistics, the outliers will occur in those, in those counties. Because there's fewer people, the ability to diverge from the mean is much easier. So it's much easier for a small, sparsely populated county to be either very good at something or very bad at something. And System 1 wants to make a coherent story and quickly assembles the facts, whichever way you like, from the first set of day you gave me or the second, I was easily able to make a coherent story and say, yes, that's the cause, clearly. Yes. That's the reason they're better or that's the reason they're sicker. Yeah, System 1 is looking for causes and sometimes there are none, it's just mere statistics. So something like that is uh, that example you know, somebody as smart as Bill Gates has fallen foul of that law because they were looking at um, providing money uh, in the education sector and they looked at statistics that showed that small schools um, had some amazingly good results. And, you know, system one in Bill Gates' mind or his foundation was, well, a small school, good results, you know, the first must cause the second. So yes. they pumped in a lot of money towards smaller class sizes and smaller schools. And what they failed to ignore was that, in fact, some of the worst schools were also small schools. And um, I've since read a different book, actually, uh, by a guy, um, Brisbane guy, talking about school systems. And apparently, uh, Simon, once you get up to about 70 students in a class, it's perfectly fine. And... Uh, once you get above 70, that's when you start start to have issues with class sizes. But 70? Yes. So it's quite counterintuitive. But, Isn't it? Uh, some of the best performing teaching um, countries, actually what they do is they put more students into a class, but that allows the teachers more time to actually prepare and, and, and review what students are doing. Um, because their actual addressing of a class is more efficient. There you go. Well, the things you read, Trevor, that, that astounds me. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll, 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 I'll grab that book at the end and, and alert people to that one. So, so there you do go. You mind, do you mind if we segue to regression to the mean? Because mm. this book has finally opened my eyes to why that's valuable. I finally understand. I thought I did, but I didn't. I finally now do understand why statisticians and people like Kahneman bang on about regression to the mean and why it's so important. 
and why it blinds us. Mm-hmm. And it's related to what you're just talking about. You know, any essentially any fact that involves small numbers is suspect. So yes. they talk about um, what does he say here? Uh, System two finds it regression to the mean difficult to understand and learn. And this is due in part to the insistent demand for causal interpretations, which is a feature of system one. And he talks about the uh, the case, I don't know if you remember this, uh, depressed children treated with an energy drink uh, improved significantly over a three-month period. And this is a made-up newspaper headline. And he says, well, this particular fact, even though it's made up, is true, but it's not causal. Depressed children are an extreme group. So uh, they're extreme in in lots of ways, but extreme groups regress to the mean over time. So any activity is likely to cause a similar improvement. So you can feed them cookies, you can make them stand on the head, you can take them for an outside walk. The same group over the three-month period is likely to statistically um, regress to a mean which has no causal implication. Mm. Yep, yep. I'm uh, uh, really, it just finally blonked into my head, you know, this is why people bang on about it, this is why it's so important. And if this single thing, if most people out there could understand a lot of the things they find significant, that they share on social media, that they make you know, electoral decisions based on, are likely to be just ephemeral things that vanish when you look at them more closely because they are simply regressions to the mean, then we'd be a lot better off. Here's, here's my favourite one for that one, Simon. And dear listener, next time you're at a dinner party, please try, try this one out and report back to me about how it goes. So in a, in a quiet moment when you've got everyone's attention, just... just uh, sit back with your glass of wine and, and say, you know, I've got this, like, this theory. I reckon highly intelligent women tend to marry men who are less intelligent than they are. You know, what do you think of that? And let's, let's see what people say. And you'll get all sorts of, you know, uh, theories from people about, oh, well, highly, highly intelligent women. You know, they're looking for a homebody or, all, you know, there will be all sorts of causal reasons that you're yeah. just talking about, Simon. Yeah. And, um, and the, the answer is that, um, well, if they're a highly intelligent woman and they're at that end of the spectrum, then if they're going to get married, they can't all marry you know, highly intelligent men. They just aren't that enough to go around. So you end up regressing to the mean. It's just, there, isn't, there isn't a story. There just is yeah. the illusion of a story. There isn't you know, causality. Yes, yes. He, he says... Elsewhere, he says, the very idea of regression to the mean is alien and difficult to communicate and comprehend, and many statistics teachers dread the class in which the topic comes up. I thought that was gorgeous. Yes. And the same, of course, applies with CEOs, with performance of their companies and fund, fund managements uh, as well, like we see um, these different fund managers. You know, they'll be good one year and then bad the next, and it'll, you know, they invariably no. regress to the mean. It's very, very few that can outperform the market mm-hmm. on a long-term basis. It's just uh, statistical aberrations that are just occurring, you know, all the time. But good luck to you if it's, you know, if you're in the right place at the right time, then <laughs> by all means, put forward that you're the one responsible. But a lot of the times, uh, they're not. So, um, so that was, yeah, that's good, the regression to the mean. Um, uh, yeah, we just see yeah, a couple of other... Um, other interesting one of these things in this whole thing Simon is the experiments that they manage to conduct where they get groups of people together and and then subject them to these 
questions and studies and scenarios and then, you know, measure their reactions. Have you ever done any, you know, been involved in that as a, as a testee or a tester? I have not. Mm. I, I never have. Yeah, yeah. After reading this book, if I was ever invited to a first-year psychology uh, <laughs> experiment, you listen up. The first thing is, whatever they tell you the experiment is about, it's never that. It's always <laughs> something else. It, so, it, it's after the experiment, five minutes later, you're walking to the next room. Be careful. That's going to be the experiment. Yes. A lot of the times they frame the experiment to these people <laughs> say, oh, we're just testing, you know, your reactions to such and such. And meanwhile, something totally different is happening that uh, is actually um, uh, gauging your response. So, um, Related to that, I remember in his discussions of priming, a gorgeous experiment that they called the Florida Effect. Um, which I think involved two stages of priming. The first is a set of words which prime you with thoughts of old age. In the American context, it was Florida and a few other things that didn't, to an American, yes. implied old age. But but age and old weren't specifically mentioned. Yes, yes. Then the apparent experiment was over, if I recall correctly, and then you were sent off to another room to yes. collect your pay or to do something else. That, of course, as you indicate, that's the experiment. And... Um, if I recall correctly, the cohort that were primed with words related to old age walked more slowly, consistently walked more slowly to the second part of the experiment than the other cohort, regard, you know, uh, regardless of their age and sort of physical mobility. Yes, extraordinary. It had nothing to do with the questions per se, dear listener, but what they were really keen to do was measure how quickly you travel down the hallway from one room to another after being exposed to old age-related questions or, yeah, or uh, think, sort of prompting. Mm. Yeah, so, so he calls this the, the influencing of an action by an idea or the idea motor effect. And you just get another thing you just don't want to be true about yourself. How could it possibly be true that simply because, say, you, Trevor, prime me with a few canny words about old age, that influences what I do five minutes from now, I and mean, the idea is horrific. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another one was where they had people in a booth, six people in a booth, and they were uh, had a microphone and they were told that in turn they had to talk for two minutes about themselves and the other people in the booth could listen to them and, of course, it was being recorded and, um, you know, if you were in... Uh, yes, and the, the microphone would come on and, and you would speak for two minutes and then it would come on to somebody else and... So that went through the six people and um, and then it went back to the first person and the first person was a stooge. And in all of these in all of these things, quite often in these things, Simon, there's a stooge who's there to, to, to really test. And what happened was that this person um, started talking in the microphone and then started saying, oh, I'm not feeling well. I'm getting this pain in my chest. I, I think I'm having a seizure. I'm starting to choke and I... Uh, and then the microphone cuts out, and that's it. And so the other five participants are listening to this, and um, the, the experiment is how many people, you know, rush out of the booth and try and find the other person and help them having a seizure. And the listener, the unfortunate answer was about 24% only would come out of the booth to actually help somebody who for all intents and purposes, just had a seizure in another booth. And so that was... And, go on. And I, I think the conclusion in that study or those studies was that 
the problem there was that everyone in the booths were aware that they weren't the only people hearing the the actor yes. uh, apparently choking. And because there's more than one of you there, then you, for whatever reason, that absolves your responsibility. But but more important than that, the lesson from that one was that they then said to the psychology students, um, you know, this is the experiment we conducted. This is the result. Twenty four percent actually came out of the booth. Now, here's an interview with two participants. So two of the participants um, uh, were interviewed and were given some, you know, some things to say and questions. Nothing in the interview either would have gave any evidence of what their actions would have been in that scenario um, as to whether they would help or not. There was no guidance given in what they said. It was just merely a chance to hear their voices about you know, some other topics. And at the end of the um, listening to the two people, the psychology students were asked, well, do you reckon those people helped the, um, the person who's having the seizure or not? And uh, a huge proportion of the psychology students said, oh, yes, yes, I, I think those, those two people helped out. And mm. the point was, well, why would you say that when you know that 25% didn't? And that there was nothing in, uh, nothing in their statement that would make you think otherwise. It was just because you've seen a personal face and you can't believe that they would behave that way. But statistically, you should have said to yourself, well, 25%, only 25% actually were willing to help. The chances are that these two didn't. Yes, and if you draw anything from the book, it's it's that when faced with any question that involves a statistical analysis, even something as simple as that, 23% or 25%, you're almost certainly not going to be able to get the right answer out without yes. invoking System 2. Yes, yes. So, um, so, on the other hand, though, it was done in the reverse, and people were told, here's two people, and they heard the same spiel from them, and afterwards they were told, now, these two people... Faced with a scenario of a seizure person in a booth, they would refuse, they, they wouldn't come out and help. And then they were said, imagine there are six people in a booth and we conducted this experiment over several days, what proportion of people do you reckon would uh, actually come out and assist? And their answers were surprisingly accurate. So they were able to infer the general from the particular, but not the particular from the general. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so fascinating the way the mind works um, in those levels, yeah. Um, one thing, one criticism about the book, I'd have to say, is you just mentioned in terms of statistics, there were some chapters there that got pretty heavy with dice rolling and stuff and, 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 and you know, offered a certain sum of money with these odds of success, what would you do sort of thing? And that, I, I, I could not, I could not, sorry to interrupt, I yeah. could not agree more. Yeah. I, I'm accused of having a real appetite for dry books and I read a lot of non-fiction. Uh, but I found, uh, yeah, the endless decisions, endless options of questions like, um, uh, you know, decision one, choose between a sure gain of $240 uh, that's A or, or B. Twenty-five percent chance to gain a thousand dollars, and sixty-five percent chance to gain chance to gain nothing, and and you're presented with these little cameos over and over and over again. And after a while, 
they just become overwhelming. Yes, it, it did get a little bit too much at that point. So, um, so you might want to skip that with your listener if it gets into that little section. Um, uh, just other interesting experiments they did where, um, you know, something was for sale and if it said limit of 12 per customer, then people would buy considerably more than if yeah. it did not say limit of 12 per customer. <laughs> So, so presumably, Trevor, presumably these tricks are well known to, to marketing people because a lot of them were new to me. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how well known these things are. Based on that, you know, you should be, you should be doing that all the time. And, well, yes, and, and, and just back to the anchoring thing. So, um, Simon, part of the podcast, we've got a bit of a Patreon account and... Um, you know, where we ask people, well, you know, if you like donating to the show, go on to Patreon and, and donate. And, you know, in Patreon, you can set up different levels of patronage. So if you set up sort of a $1, a $2 and a $5 level of, of patronage, you're potentially dutting yourself. Yes, because, <laughs> yes. Because now after reading this book, what what ideally I should have on there is sort of a, a five dollar, ten dollar, fifty dollar level of, of patronage, <laughs> because that then sets an anchor where people go. Oh, actually, I'll go for the middle one there. I'll go for the ten dollar, whatever. That's you know, right. so, well, yeah. all the cool kids are clearly giving fifty dollars. I better give fifty dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so even though I'm aware of it, you don't necessarily use it all the time. But you're no. right. I guess the marketing people. You know, I don't know. I don't see that many limit of twelve per customer signs, but maybe I don't shop in the right places. Well, the other, and I can't find my notes, but the other examples of people being asked to assess the value of a collection of crockery, mm. and essentially the same collection of crockery, but um, with some extra pieces, but also with one extra broken saucer, and consistently valuing the second set as being worth less than the first set. Correct. Yes. When there's no rational basis for doing that, but it's got a broken saucer in it. Yeah, I'm on that page right now. So there were... Uh, uh, in set A, there were eight dinner plates, eight soup salad bowls, eight dessert plates, all of them in good condition. There you are. And um, set B was exactly the same, but set A also had um, eight cups, two of them were broken, and eight sauces, seven of them broken. And um, participants um, were willing to... Um, uh, to pay more for the set that had uh, less, but it was all in good condition. Mm. Yeah, because System One's made a story, a quick, intuitive story, and said, "Here's, I've got your interest covered. Yep. This is the better bargain." Yeah. Whereas if you sat down and just literally drew little two little you know columns on the left and right to compare what you were buying, System Two would eventually say, "Well, that second offer's worth more for sure." Yeah. Um, so. $33 versus $23, so, yeah. So, that was, this, this, and really, we're sort of scampering through a few of these, but the book is littered with interesting little just things where people's minds have gone in a direction where you just you think, really? That's how people's minds, that's how we actually work? There's all sorts of examples. Absolutely. I tell you, the one that really hit home with me was, or uh, well, well, lots of issues to do with a thing that he calls cognitive ease. Mm. The idea that how easy you find something internally in your brain hugely influences the decisions you make. Um, 
and one of the examples on page 59, he talks about uh, a sentence, and this is astounding, a sentence that's printed in a clear font or has been repeated or has been primed, we were talking about priming before, will be fluently processed with cognitive ease. Yes. And you experience cognitive strain, the opposite, when you read instructions in a poor font in faint colours or worded in complicated language or when you're in a bad mood or even when you frown. Yes. But then later, the, under, the, the, the finding is that, that when you experience cognitive strain, you're much more likely to come to the correct decision. So that if, you, in fact, you're reading something in a poor light and in a poor font, um, you, system two is being invoked by that yes. cognitive strain and good luck for you. Yeah. So one of, my, one of my takeaway messages there is if you're producing documentation or something, <laughs> do your worst and people will be, they'll curse you, but they might, they might learn more. That's if you want them to understand it, yes. If As opposed to if you want them to enjoy it. reading it and not understand it, perhaps. Yes, if you don't yeah. want them to think about it, make it really, um, yeah, pretty, yeah. So the mm. bat and ball example we gave before, if you presented that to somebody in written format in a, in a very clear, easy-to-read font uh, and to a different group of people... At, I wonder. ...in a, in a yes. difficult font that was slightly um, faded and... The people with the faded one in a difficult font would be more likely to get that correct because they've had to engage System 2 just to read it. And since System 2's up and running, uh, they're more likely to engage it to actually get the correct answer. That would be... I think that's right. That, that's, good. that's a good um, melding of things from the book. But Ooh. I'm sure that if you tested that robustly enough, that would be the case, particularly if you really invoke system two and the stuff is really difficult to read and you really got slightly annoyed and you're slightly on edge, but you're just in a, in a, in a better position apparently to get the help of system two yeah. and to sort of shut system one down a little bit um, for, the, for the time that you need to. I'm, I reckon Donald Trump is just a, a function of system one thinking oh. for so many people. <laughs> At this point, it seems all around the world that no podcast can go for more than 30 minutes without <laughs> Donald Trump's name being mentioned, and I guess fair enough. And rightly so. In the, in the history of the world, you know, in 5,000 years, when, they, when they're turning around and looking, you know, it'll be, it'll be a, a big point in, in world affairs. Yeah, you're right. But it's, it's system one where people are just, ah, yeah, I, they don't want to be confronted with some hard, unpalatable... That's right. well, it's, funny you should, it's funny you should say that because in the same chapter on cognitive ease, he says words that you've seen before become easier to see again and that a reliable way to make people believe in falsehoods is, and this is very Donald Trump, it's frequent repetition yes. because familiarity is not easily distinguished from truth. Now, we kind of intuitively know that's how Trump works, but it's a bit chilling to see that that's a psychologically established fact, Yeah, that, that it really is the case that he's onto something. At some level, he knows what he's doing. Uh, I, I, my favourite thing with him is to say it's not so much strategy, it's just the way he is. and He just happens to be in the right <laughs> place at the right time for, for what he's doing. And he, It's not like he's got... He couldn't in his mind actually change course even if he wanted to. He just can only do what he does. But it happens to fit quite well with the world at the moment for his purposes. So, yeah, I mean... 
he just says fake news, fake news, fake news, and people just go, oh, yeah, fake news. Yeah, that's, that's a good, easy answer to that. You know, because if it wasn't fake news, I'd actually have to think about climate change and the fact mm. that maybe I need to get rid of my big Ford pickup truck and get something <laughs> smaller. And, and Are you as astonished, yeah. Trevor, as I am at how the 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 lingua franca of, of, lingua franca of <laughs> fake news has become accepted? When, when people of that kind of ilk started using the phrase, I laughed initially. Now it's it's so it's so often you hear it so often people invoke it and they mean it, and it's and it's, and it's believed. So there's enough people around the world now take it as a serious matter that there is that there's a problem called fake news, and of course it becomes a you know a, 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 what's the word I'm trying to say? It, it becomes a. a well, well, it's it's easy. It, it just washes away any sort of. Uh, difficult questions and allows you just to keep on going with what you're doing. But it's the repetition that yes. gets you. The repetition yes. apparently makes it more likely to be accepted and that in turn, you know, it becomes true. Yes, yes, yep. It sort of greases the wheels and, and just slides on through, so as acceptable, yep. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Um, let's see, what else have I got here? Um, uh, Small shop is paying an employee nine dollars an hour. The business is poor and decides to drop the employee's wage to seven dollars an hour, which is the standard wage for the area. Eighty-three percent of people would say that's not fair. However, if that employee leaves voluntarily and the new employee is hired at seven dollars an hour, seventy-three percent say that is okay. Yes, and what's the mechanism that he's, that he's invoking here? Why do we do that? It's, um, it's a thing where it was all, a lot of it came in that, in that section where, you know, you can win this amount at these odds or you can lose that <laughs> amount at those odds. And people really hate losing more than they like winning. So when they're perceiving this situation of the wages, it's, it's a losing situation which they see as being unfair. So our sort of, um, yeah, our response of, of our reaction to losing is stronger than our reaction to winning. So take that to the golf course, dear listener, because what they did was a study of professional golfers and their putting and I spent a lot of time analysing degree of difficulty etc to get them you know apples compared with apples but golfers if they were putting for par would be more likely to get the putt in than if they were putting for birdie because they hate losing a shot, which is if you go under par, you know, if you're a bogey. So to putt for par and avoid bogey was incredibly more motivating for a golfer than, than getting a birdie. So the difference was 3.6%, which is a reasonably substantial amount. But golfers will concentrate more on a putt to save par and avoid loss, then they will concentrate on a putt for 30 and 
The golfing lingo is just swimming in my head, and I will right. admit I, I, I don't follow along. I'm one right. of those shameful human beings that doesn't <laughs> play. But I, I guess what you're saying is that, 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 that the golfer in this case is focusing more because they care more about they're Not, more lost, they're more risk averse to, to one yeah, scenario correct. than the other. Correct. They're really risk averse to losing below, you know, to dropping below par in a hole. So, um, with par's even and a bogey is, is to drop a lot, you know, to, to be one over. So, yeah, they concentrate more because the pain of, of, of losing is worse than the joy of, of, of a success. Uh, That's how uh, mentally we work and that is the section in the book where there's probably goes on for a few pages more than necessary that illustrates that in terms of money and dice throwing and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. It is the case. You can skip to the end of some of the chapters and read. There's a little summary he provides, a nice summary at the end of every chapter, and you can read that summary and you will have got the gist of most of what was there. That's the truth. And, and some of them, they are a little on the dry side. Yeah. Now, the other th interesting one was how well we remember our experiences, Simon, and Another experiment that they did on people was plunging their hands into some very, very cold water. So the water was at a temperature where it was quite uncomfortable and, and painful. And one group were subjected to this for, I think, 60 seconds. Uh, the next group were subjected to this exact same temperature, the, the exact same length of time of 60 seconds. But they also had an additional 30 seconds at the end where the temperature mm. was just a little bit of warm water was added to make it noticeably more comfortable. Mm. So group A, in pain for 60 seconds. Group B, in pain for 60 seconds and an additional 30 seconds of slightly lesser pain. And then they did experiments with people because they subjected them to both processes and guess which ones people would prefer to to suffer again which you know when people are told well you know which one would you prefer if you had to you know go through that again and dear listener people went for the one that was longer because our memories work in such a way that we remember the most recent uh, feelings and we heavily discount the the earlier memories even in such a short-term experiment I found reading this was quite poignant for me because this reminded me of some bad decisions I've made in my life and, and based on this kind of experience of pain versus memory of pain or the idea of this you know he calls somewhere in the book he describes the tyranny of the remembered self He's big on saying that really there are two selves, the experiencing self and the remembering self. Yes. He puts it really, really beautifully. He says, odd as it may seem, I am my remembering self and the experienced self, which does my living, is like a stranger to me. And that's what an experiment and dozens like it show is that, that it's all well and good for you to experience things and actually go through the pain or the joy, but all that really damn well matters is what you actually remember. Yes. And he, he bottles us up as the peak end rule or yeah. as duration neglect. You neglect duration in favour of the peak at the end, in favour of your remembered, what your remembered self handles to, ha hands to you. Yeah. This is a terrible indictment of ourselves. It really is. 
It's it's uh it's scary, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um so essentially the book is just a litany of cognitive errors that we as humans make every day. Um <laughs> where we where we might think that we've acted rationally. Um but in fact we probably really haven't been thinking that much at all and um we've actually acted irrationally and it's amazing the number of situations. Um so um, I got some notes here. I'm not sure if it's from the book or from me, but I was just thinking about you know the sort of the way we run our society. Then it sort of adds to the argument that you've got to protect people from themselves to some degree, Simon. Perhaps. Without wanting to be too paternalistic as a society, there is that tension, isn't there? Yes. Um, you know, th- this book addresses why why people believe in foolish things, which is, you know, you with the secular party and I have very similar interests. Um, these are questions that, that engage us. Why, why do people believe in foolish things? It's yeah. so cl- you know, plainly obvious to us that religions are a false way of understanding the cosmos, but why is that not plainly obvious to everybody else? Yes. Well, because System 1 is, a, as Kahneman says, a machine for jumping to conclusions. And somehow or other... Presumably, you know, in, in secondary school education or at that kind of level, people need to be really um, exposed to these ideas. Because yes. there's no shame in saying, well, this is the kind of creature that we are. It's who we are. It's what evolution has, has delivered to us. And it's, you know, there's some pretty good things about being humans as well. I love, you know, my life. I love being living at this time in, in history. But we may as well know all that we can about ourselves. Yeah. So, um I think, you know, he was saying in the book that even after all the years that he's studied, studied this, he still finds himself making these cognitive errors <laughs> and having to stop. And obviously, that's not as much as most people, but it still happens. And the sort of takeout seems to be to try and recognise situations and go, hold on a minute, mm. I need to engage system two, like... Ding, 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 alarm bells. You know, I've read something somewhere that in this situation, I might be making a real bad Absolutely. assumption I, here. Yeah. That, that he himself should still be making these mistakes after, what, four or five decades and a Nobel Prize, if you don't mind, for Ooh. this work should alarm us all. And I think you could get a little yellow sticky note, put it on your computer screen or on your, you know, your desk or wherever you are, and you could put four things on it. You could say, you know, one, frown. Two, read text in a poor font if you get a chance. You know, three, eat before you make important decisions. And say, four, remember the tyranny of the remembered self. Yes. Are you really making a decision about what you actually experienced or what you remember you experienced? Yeah. So there's some heuristics. I mean, the book's chock mm. full of heuristics that you can apply. Mm. You can just remember to. Particularly in meetings. Don't start yeah. a meeting with the leader, you know, putting forward their opinion because everyone's just going to follow and you're just going to be an echo chamber. And I, sorry. Trevor, I, sorry, Trevor, I love that idea. I wonder, do people actually do that? Yeah. You sit down at a meeting, don't say anything, all of you write down what you want to achieve and then put, you know, put your bits of paper or whatever into the middle. Yes. Does that, does that ever really happen? Because he strongly recommends something like that, doesn't he? He does. I, I doubt it. I doubt that it happens. And the other meeting scenario, kind of, or business scenario that he, he, um, he advocates is a pre-mortem. So where a company or where you've got an important decision to make, um, what you should do is say, um, okay, everybody, imagine we're one year into the future and this project has failed 
Mm-hmm. I want you to write a history of why it failed. And um, that would just concentrate the mind and that overcomes our, our overly optimistic system one where we just want to agree and let things ease and go through. And if you actually force system two again with this pre-mortem, I thought that was an excellent um, idea. I, absolutely. That's part of his sort of view of the outside view that we have. We're all subject to, my gosh, I've fallen into this trap too many times. Subject to what he calls the planning fallacy, where you make plans and forecasts that you know are unrealistically close to what you think is the best case scenario, and and these plans could be improved by consulting you know the stats of similar cases, but we don't do it. And if you're in business and you're in the business of making quotes or estimates, that's the fallacy you fall into. That's I mean, businesses fall into that fallacy all the time. So, um, so there you go, dear listener. Uh, Simon, any other tidbits or you reckon we've covered most of what we wanted to cover? Um, get the book. If you're at all interested in, in the kinds of things that, well, you probably are because you're listening to this podcast in the first place, this is a must read. Don't be ashamed if you skip some of the chapters or, you know, uh, skip to the end of some of them. Um, yeah. It's a great book yeah. um, and this is a great contribution. These are things that we all need to know about ourselves. Yeah. Dear listener, on the website, there's a little books tab and if you buy the book, uh, then if you click on the link, you'll be sent to Book Depository and they'll send it to you and, and I think we get a little kickback for the, um, for the podcast. Good, so if you, a, good, a good idea. Yeah, so, and there's a few other different books there as well which you could um, look at while you're there. So, um, well, Simon, I enjoyed that. It was good to um, do that with you and um, we might do it again down the track. If I, if, have a look at the Books tab there, Simon, and <laughs> see if do. there's any others that you like the look of and we could always do another book review down the track. Love to. Good on you, Trevor. My yeah. pleasure. All right. Uh, stay on the line, um, Simon. And dear listener, thank you for listening to the podcast and we'll be back next week. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said and when you're talking to your friends say hey I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to and maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out the other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really... What do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event. 
you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.